Good morning. Man, good to see you all. Uh, shout out to 5.6. Thank you for sticking around with us uh, this morning. As Matt said a little bit ago, a special welcome to you if you are a guest with us. We are so, so glad uh, to have you here. And if uh, this is home, if you are part of the Mission Point family, welcome home. Um, it's just great to be uh, together um, once again. Uh, we are in the third week of a series that we are calling The Truth About. The Truth About. And, uh, you, you know, you don't have to uh, watch the news for too long to realize that uh, tensions are pretty high in this nation right now. In fact, the tensions aren't just high. The tensions are dividing this nation right now, pitting people in opposing corners over a variety of very heated and in many ways controversial issues. What are we going to do about the the, the terror attacks on our soil? What are we going to do about guns? And, And what does the government have to say about that or not say about that? What about the race? issue and uh, some of the violent riots that have broken out in response to police violence. And, and which side do you take um, over that particular issue? What about the candidates and what they stand for and what they're saying in this election cycle? And the tension is rising And the division is growing. And normally that wouldn't cause unusual concern, except there is a chill in the air. Normally I wouldn't even think to get up here and talk about some of the conversation on the political and on the controversial front. But there is a unique chill in the air. And one of the reasons it's becoming chilling to me is because this division isn't just reserved for our country and our government. It is sneaking into the church. These issues are starting in an eerie way to divide the church, to pit us against each other, to put us in opposing corners, depending on what you believe about that and what you say about him. And instead of rising together in dark times, there are hints of pulling apart, going at each other, and going at the people that we disagree with, weakening our voice as God's mouthpiece in this culture, dimming the light so desperately needed, especially in a season like this. And so we want to ask the question, how would Jesus have us respond to some of these tense Issues And more importantly, how would Jesus have us respond to each other? And more importantly, how would Jesus have us respond to each other when we disagree deeply over some of these controversial and tense issues? How should the church respond to some of the volatile tensions that are dividing a nation and frankly threatening to do the same too? The church. Uh, one of those tense issues is the issue um, surrounding the conversation about immigration and refugees and border control and so on and so forth. As many of you know, recently uh, the nation of Syria has experienced one of the most unprecedented civil wars to Date. Over four million of its citizens have been displaced, many of them running in fear for their lives. Fifty percent of that four million are believed to be children. Their futures uncertain, helpless and hopeless in this crisis that has become their reality. And the question is, what should we do about that? If anything, especially in the light of the reality that terror attacks have not only touched Paris, they've touched down on U.S. soil in San Bernardino not too long ago. And there is this fear and this, the possibility that terror groups might sneak in some of their best to do some of their worst 
forced through these Syrian refugees. What should we do about that? And tension is stirring. Not to mention um, the border south of us, the immigration battle over Mexico is hotter than ever. And now the Pope is in Mexico. In fact, he's at the U.S.-Mexico border praying for all those Mexicans who died in an attempt to cross over onto U.S. soil, which is stirring tension in the candidates who are saying the Pope is putting his nose where it doesn't belong and it's taking sides and it's just stirring up dirt. And what's he saying about our policy and our, our politics? And then people are taking sides and starting to chime in and the tension just continues to rise and rise and rise. The conversation on how to engage the refugee and the immigrant is heating up. And I've got to be honest, I am nervous. I'm nervous about the growing rhetoric that's coming from the candidates. That in and of itself gives me chills. But like I said, I'm even more nervous by the rhetoric that's being echoed and being voiced by the church. And I'm even more nervous about the fact that the ways we are starting to join in on rhetoric and to raise our voices is actually pitting the church against each other. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, this chapter, um, and this verse in many ways, has served as the anchor for our series. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As many of you know, we spent a a number of months in the fall uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, by the way, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, some very, very handsome gentlemen are going to be coming up the aisle. And if you need one, just slip your hand up. Uh, to let them know you need one. If you don't own a copy of the scriptures, please keep this as our gift to you. If you you need a last-minute Valentine's Day gift, please just grab one and give it to your special somebody. But we spent a a number of months um, in the fall working through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Such a powerful study. Let me tell you something really quickly about it that we didn't emphasize too much as we journeyed through it, partly because we wanted the church to feel some of the weight of what we were working through. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are exclusively devoted to God telling the church what he's done for them and what he's given to them. And so here's what's so unique about the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. There's not a single command in three chapters. There's not a single hint from Paul about you need to do this or you need to give this. The first three chapters in Ephesians are telling us what God has done and what God has given to us because Paul's convinced if we become convinced of what God has done and God has given, it will deeply influence the way we live. And people say, Kondo, we keep talking about we've been redeemed and we've been chosen and we are loved by God unconditionally. When are you going to start telling us what to do? And I'm like, good, so you're feeling the tension of three chapters with no commands. Just what God sees when he looks at you. And then we get to Ephesians chapter 4, which functions in verse 1 as a pivot a swivel. And here's what it says. Let's read this together. You don't have to read it out loud, but let's look at what it says. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The word worthy is the word balance, as Matt shared a couple of weeks ago. It's a word balance. Such a powerful single verse. Paul is saying after three chapters of figuring out what God has given and what God has done and that God has redeemed and that God has forgiven and that God loves you unconditionally, chapter 4 verse 1 says, now balance that out in the way you live. Equal the weight of what God has done in what you now do. 
If God has poured love onto this side of the scale, how ought you to treat the people around you? If he's forgiven you, I'm going to drop the scale. If he's forgiven you unconditionally, how ought you to treat the people who wrong you? It serves as this incredible pivot. Your life should live out what God has poured in. Um, when I was um, 17 years old, I graduated from a, a high school in uh, Zambia. I barely had time to celebrate this relatively major accomplishment for me at the time when I was awakened by the daunting reality that was my life. I remember coming home and realizing very, very quickly, my education is over and my future is uncertain. Uh, in Zambia at the time, there were two main universities. And um, for a country that was full of high school grads, you can see demand far outweighed the supply. And so unless your grades were flawless, or unless you knew someone who knew someone who knew the president of the country, or unless your family had an extraordinary amount of money, you were out of luck. Education wasn't an option. And even for those who happened to get into the universities, at that particular time, there were constant um, teacher strikes which stalled the process of getting a degree. But even if you happened to stick that out and work your way to the finish line, there were very few good-paying jobs. And so I got home and had to stare the reality in the face. This reality that this was my life. I was going to become another Zambian statistic who scrapped around to try and make ends meet. In this avalanche economically, that was the third world. Because at that time, my parents made a combined annual salary of about $2,000. Neither of them knew anyone who knew anyone who knew the president of the country. And I don't really feel like talking about my high school grades to any of you right now. But needless to say, I was out of options. I don't know if I mentioned my education was over and my future was uncertain. So I did the only thing that uh, an optionless teenage Zambian boy could do. I fell on my face, I fasted, and I begged God, please provide beyond our resources. And he said, okay, sure. I can still remember getting the very distinct sense that God was saying, I am going to open a door for you to go to school in the United States of America. Now, I just happened to be young enough to believe him. But I also happened to be naive enough to go and share this good news with my family. I'm going to school in America, y'all. And I'm going to name names. I'm not going to name names. Don't incriminate the guilty. But... My family just laughed hysterically. That is so funny. Buddy, this would be a very good time for you to look around, remember who you are, and remember where you are. But for some reason or another, my dad said, hmm, if you really believe this is what the Lord is doing, then let's take a risk. And he borrowed about a year's worth of wages in order to put me on a plane, to buy an airline ticket to send me to live with my aunt who lived in Ashland, Ohio at the time for a number of months. He decided to take um, a risk. So a few months later, I, I land in New York City with a six-month uh, visitor's visa, a little bit of money in my pocket, and a whole lot of hope. As I drove through Manhattan, just swallowed and engulfed by these massive buildings that are high-fiving the clouds, I felt like I could touch the sky. I was in America, baby. The land where dreams came true. All of a sudden, I wondered if my education was possible and my future had a little bit of 
hope, the breeding ground of dreams. Lady Liberty took me in. I still remember the first night I was downtown in Manhattan and I was just walking through every dark alley. I was young. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. Uh, I learned that. I learned that later. Um, as soon after arriving at my aunt's house, I, I got a phone call from a man I didn't know. And he got on the line and said, hi, my name is Russ Yoder. I'm like, hey, what's up? And he, he said, I was so stirred by the Holy Spirit that I ought to take a trip to Zambia. And I just got back. I'm like, no way. I just got here. When did you go? He said, oh, September the 15th. I'm like, oh my goodness. That's when I came here. Our planes must have crossed in the sky or something. He said, while I was there, I met your parents and your parents asked me where I was from. I said, I was from America. I said, we just sent our son to America. We're in America. Uh, well, I'm from Ohio. Our son is in Ohio. No way. We're in Ohio. He's in Ashland. Well, I'm from Worcester. That's like 20 minutes up the road. And so anyway, I'm coming to bring you to meet my family. He came and he picked me up. And no joke, that crazy white Yoder family took this strange 18-year-old kid in and they made me a part of their family. Kondo Yoder Simfukwe. I'm telling you, it was crazy. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. They didn't know who I was. I was a stranger to them. But they so beautifully took me in. That's where I first discovered the art of overeating at Thanksgiving. It's what the, it's what the pilgrims would want. And um, it's the first time I ever experienced having a, a present under a tree with my name written on it. They took me in. Uh, the Yodas happened to go to uh, a Grace Brethren church. I'd never heard of a Grace Brethren church. But apparently these Grace Brethren were crazy. And in 1948, they said, hey, I'll tell you what, let's start a college in some podunk, no place town in Indiana called Winona Lake. And Grace College was born. Needless to say, they handed me, um, Russ handed me an application to Grace College. I filled that thing out right quick. And before we knew it, we're heading here for a campus visit. When I got here, I, I ran into the director of admissions, and I gave him the most compelling speech you have ever heard. I said, I would really like to go to school here. <laughs> and uh, he looked at me and said, okay, do you have money? I'm like, no, what for? You know, um, <laughs> a couple of months later, I got a letter from Grace saying, we would love to have you come as a student, and we've made every provision for that to be possible. I'm like, whoa, do I have to play soccer real good? No. Okay, do I have to jump real high? Like, no. Do I have to run real fast? No. Real far? No. Do I have to keep impeccable grades? Because my grades, are, um, I don't want to talk about my grades right now. No. No, you don't. They took me in. And by the way, I've never shared this story publicly. And one of the reasons I don't is because I'm so aware of the privilege afforded to me that many of you students are wrestling to make it through college. In fact, you're going to go back to the admissions folks over there and be like, hey, what's the condo clause all about? Let me just put you out of your misery and tell you everybody involved in this process no longer works there. I wonder if that's why. I don't know. Uh, but... They're no longer there. I have labored to this day to try to figure out why did you guys do that for me? And the best I can figure is when I walked out of that meeting, this guy said, I felt compelled by the spirit. And I walked upstairs and said to the financial aid folk, listen, do whatever you can to get that kid to come to school here. That was it. And for the last few months, we've been working on it. Grace literally took me one of the ways they made that possible was by putting out an announcement to all the local churches. And the announcement said, <laughs> African student in need of housing. And they put that out to the churches. I'm like, seriously, 
What person would be crazy enough to, to say yes to taking in a potentially, you know, uncivilized, spear-wielding African? I mean, there was, listen, there was no Facebook. They couldn't stalk me, figure out my credentials or anything like that. Who would be crazy enough to say yes to that except for the runnings? Um, a couple in their early 30s with three kids homeschooled, the youngest of whom was four at the time, who said, we felt compelled by the Spirit to take in a stranger from Africa that we have never met. Do you know how crazy that is, first of all? Number two, do you know how risky that is? They don't know me. I could be a cannibal. I could be crazy. And you know, do you know how costly it is to take in an African student? I eat a lot. In fact, in his spare time, Don, the man of the house, literally built a room in the basement just for me. There was still wood shavings and the smell of cut wood when I got there in this freshly carpeted room that belonged to me. The runnings took me in as a part of their family. It's where I first learned to love Caesar salads because Elizabeth could whip up a mean Caesar salad. Uh, That's a place where I I first gave uh, my interview, gave an interview to my future flower girl in our wedding, little Anna. Little did she know, little did I know. Uh, She may even be sitting in this room as a married woman now, 20 years later. They took me in. Condo, Yoder, running, Sinfuque. That that was me. Uh, that, That is part of my unbelievable journey, part of my unbelievable story. And, you know, I share that with you. Um, because I want you to know, I am an outsider. I am a foreigner who was taken in when I was short on options, future uncertain, except for the hospitality of this beautiful country and some of its beautiful people. I was given an opportunity I wouldn't have otherwise had. I was given an education I otherwise would never have had. Did I I deserve it? Did I somehow earn it? Nope. But for the generous posture of open arms that has been part of this country's DNA for decades and decades and decades. And as if that wasn't enough, America went so far as to give me one of its finest in the form of a hot little number from Seattle, Washington. And um, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. And um, together, <clears throat> together we've created two little American beauties. Just trying to give back. Just, I'm just trying to give back. Just, just trying to play my part. Um, and listen, if for no other reason but to say thank you, If there was no other reason I got up here to share that but to say thank you, I would feel like that was a pretty good use of my time this morning. I can't tell you how grateful I am uh, to now be as an ex-foreigner, an ex-outsider included as a citizen and to be able to call this incredible country home. But I actually do tell the story for a a further reason than that. Because I want to say something that I've never said publicly either for a variety of reasons. And um, one of the reasons is because I can't prove what I'm about to say. But I feel like I can come close. And considering some of the chilling, intense times in which we're living, I, I, I think this is worth venturing into it. And here's what I, I want to suggest. I'm convinced one of the main reasons America has become the great nation it is, is because it's insisted on opening its doors and its arms and taking the risk to take in outsiders, future uncertain like me. Now, please don't hear me say, I'm the reason America is great. Just, you know, tweet that somehow. No, that's, that's not my 
my point. It's a great nation because Lady Liberty won't stop hugging and welcoming 18-year-old Zambian kids with uncertain futures and giving them a chance to pursue happiness. Lady Liberty, for some reason or another, she just won't stop inviting and taking in the hurting and the broken from every nation to come and be introduced to hope, to find a better life, maybe even liberty, and maybe even happiness. I'm convinced one of the main reasons that America has mounted on that bold eagle's wings and has soared far above every other nation is because she has opened her arms wide to every nation and taken them in. It's crazy. And as you study this rich history of hospitality, don't get me wrong, there are dark times, and we'll touch on those here in a second, but, but it's been going on for years. As many of you know, um, in um, 1892, uh, the U.S. government purchased a, a 338 acre military harbor in New York City, and they transformed it into a 27.5-acre immigration processing center. And Ellis Island became this golden gate through which millions and millions of people were welcomed into this Canaan of sorts, this land of promise. And they were welcomed and taken And over the following 62 years, more than 12 million people were taken in by this country as Lady Liberty stood tall in that harbor, proclaiming herself the mother of exiles, speaking, poetically singing those beautiful words of welcome. You know them. You've heard them. Uh, Let's have them up on the screen. This is what she sings. Every day she stands and she sings. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And people like myself believed her. And we showed up. People like your great-grandparents believed this, and they showed up, futures uncertain, looking for a better life. In fact, statistically, 40% of those of you who are Americans sitting in this room can trace your story. You can trace your ancestry back to Ellis Island. Because your great-grandparents were 18-year-olds like me, without hope and looking for a better life. And Lady Liberty said, come on in. Now, um, at present, there's almost 45 million Americans who are immigrants, foreigners, outsiders, who've been taken in. And by the way, can we just be honest? How risky is it to open your gates to people from a variety of different places, some who come with less than honorable intentions, some who end up doing damage, some who come just to take but don't offer anything. That's risky. That's messy, which is one of the reasons I say an additional thank you. I couldn't have proved that I would be worth my weight in the visa paper to come into this country. And how costly is it Because immigrants, we eat a lot. This is expensive, not to mention the blood that was shed for the freedoms afforded to people who didn't have to do anything. They just showed up to this beautiful country, just showed up at Grace College, provisions already made. That's a costly gesture, which is one of the reasons I think this nation is the great nation she is. By the way, while she was generous, Lady Liberty wasn't naive or careless. People didn't just come in however they wanted There was a designated place or a port of entry. There was a designated process. There was a way to vet people to figure out who you were. In fact, at Ellis Island, people could be be halted for days and even weeks while they processed their stuff to make sure it wasn't a careless process. But all in all, it ended up back at this posture of open arms and taking in and saying, huddled masses, come in. 
This is not to say there weren't dark seasons like we mentioned. There were dark seasons of tragic discrimination where fear would grip a nation because something went wrong and the border policies would be tightened and tightened and people would be deported in mass out of fear. There were seasons like that. But when it was all said and done, it returned to this posture of welcome. In fact, in 1965, uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Act was instituted that opened the borders of the USA wider than it had ever been opened before, to more nations than it had been opened to before. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that's right around the time when America was being proclaimed the undisputed powerhouse nation on the planet. Nation made up of foreigners and immigrants, rich and poor, white and black, and every shade in between. This massy mess of people. And I'm convinced one of the primary reasons this country became the most powerful and the most wealthy nations on the earth was because when she chose to take in the huddled masses, she stumbled into the very heartbeat of God. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, when she opened up and said, come on into the hurting, come on into the broken, I think she joined God in his most passionate quest. Because I don't know if you knew this, but nothing fires God up more. Nothing makes him more happy than to open the borders and to bring in the hurting and the hopeless masses. Take them in and give them hope and the possibility of a better future and ultimate happiness. That's what God is about. And I think somewhere in the story of this country, it stumbled into the heartbeat of God. And God's goodness stumbled and poured out on it. That is the very heartbeat of God. Busting open the gates and making heaven, heaven island, this safe harbor. That offers home and hope. And we're not even going to talk about how, how risky that is. To open the gates at the possibility that something might happen to God's own son if he did. We're not even going to talk about the risk he takes because some of us show up with less than honorable intentions. We're not even going to talk about the risk of opening that up when some of us just show up to take and whine and complain and we don't really give anything back to God, but yet still he opened the gates of heaven. We're not even going to talk about the cost, the sacrifice it took for God to be able to say, just come. Provisions have already been taken care of. All you need to do is enter through the gates. Because there is actually a place called the cross, a port of entry. And there is a, a person called Jesus Christ, this liberty incarnate himself. Who stands in a posture with open arms saying, price paid, come on in. That's a heartbeat of God. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your spiritual immigration story. How costly. And I love it. I mean, doesn't the Statue of Liberty remind you in her poetic song uh, of words that you might have heard somewhere else before? Let me remind you, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, look, look at what Jesus said. Come to me, all you huddled masses who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. Safe haven for your souls. Come on, huddled masses from every tribe, language, tongue, background. Short on options, 
futures uncertain, with very little to offer except your messes. Come, I'll give you rest, and I'll pay for it. And then look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 about us, the church, as a result. This is your story. For a person like me, this is my story twice. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. And you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without God in the world. Spiritual refugees. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's a high cost. And then in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, it says this, Consequently, you are no longer outsiders. You are no longer foreigners. You are no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You used to be outsiders. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, all provision was cared for. And you've been brought in. And you've been given the promises. And you've been called family. And now, <laughs> there is a, a gift with your name on it under his tree. Now, uh, um, you can learn the art of overeating at the great supper of the Lamb. Except you don't have to worry about excess calories because glorified bodies and everything. It's going to be a whole thing. But you are not just brought in as a citizen of heaven, but you have been taken in by God as part of his family. Kondo, Yoder, running, Simfukwe, Christ. I don't know what my new last name is, spiritually speaking. I just know I was once an outsider without hope. And at great cost to him, God took me in and made me a part of his family, a citizen of the most dominant empire in eternity. And then look again at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Then Paul says, listen, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, church, to, to live a life worthy of that kind of calling. The calling that you have received. And this is what I, I came to say, church. If God took us in when we were outsiders without hope or a future, if that's what he's given and that's what he's done, if he gave us heaven as a home when we had nothing to offer, what does it look like to live a life worthy of that. What does it look like to live out with each other in the church first and then with the world beyond the church? What does it look like for people who've been taken in as ex-refugees and ex-foreigners? What does it look like for us to live in a way that balances that out? Um... Peter tells us, look at what he says in, in 1 Peter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Uh, things are going crazy. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality without whining. Do you know what hospitality means? Here's what it means. To take care of or to take in strangers in need. That's what hospitality means. To take care of or to take in strangers in need. The world is going 
crazy. There will be cause to be anxious and to be unsettled. And the tone around us will get darker and darker and dimmer and dimmer. And the world around you is going to start to scream, oh, self-preservation, do everything to remain safe. And yet, to live worthy of the calling, heaven is screaming, take care of and take in strangers in need. Oh, it's going to be risky. And oh, it's going to be messy. And oh, it might cost you. But remember how risky and messy and costly it was for him to take you in and take care of And take in strangers in need. God would say this to his people, um, the Israelites, when they got to Canaan. And, you know, it's like they've made it now, you know. I mean, they're in in the newfound land. Uh, You know, they they are in the land of promise. Uh, The prehistoric Disney world. I mean, they were in Canaan. Life was okay. Dreams were coming true and everything. And God would say this to them often. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19. It says, he, God, executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien or the foreigner by giving him food and clothing. So, Show your love for the foreigner, the alien, the refugee, for you were foreigners, aliens, and refugees in the land of Egypt. He would constantly remind them that. Now that you found safe harbor, do not forget you were the refugee. You were the foreigner. You were the outsider. You were the two million Syrian kids. You were in need. Now, what does it look like to live worthy of what I, God, have done for you? He constantly said that to his people. When you have the opportunity, do for others what's been done for you. Open your arms to help the foreigner and the stranger in need. So a couple of quick things. Number one, I want to speak to those of you who are American citizens, um, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. And um, man, I realize I'm towing a fine line because we're in church. We're not at, at some political event, but I'm from Zambia. So I don't know how the political stuff works yet. I'm still learning. So, you know, I can, you know, I may make a mistake, but, you know, I'm not from around here. Um, See, so here's what I would say. Please don't change. Please don't change. Do not forget your great history and what made you great in the first place. Oh, there have been dark days, and I, I know that, and I don't want to miss that. But one thing shone beautifully. One thing kept coming back as the posture, and it was your love for strangers in need. And if there's any truth to the suspicion that is part of the reason this nation is great is, is because of its hospitality, then I'm telling you, the prevailing rhetoric on the campaign trail should terrify you. But at a minimum, it should unnerve you. It, it should make you a little bit uneasy. Any talk that starts to trumpet, keep people out, kick people out, strangers in genuine need, it flies in the very face of the very DNA, the rich DNA that made this nation great in the first place. This nation was not made great by walls. It was made great by welcome. So my please, please don't change. Um, plus, I find it really ironic that oftentimes what I'm hearing being suggested um, and this could have been your great-grandparents being spoken about. How quickly we forget. Uh, I find it ironic how different the campaign trail would look if some of the proposed policies were implemented. I don't know if you knew this, but obviously both Ted Cruz and and Mr. Rubio's fathers came from Cuba. One generation removed to find a better life. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, his Jewish father, emigrated from Poland in the early 1900s. Uh, a lot of his family remained behind, and they died in the Holocaust. But his dad made it safe. And now here's Bernie running for president. The campaign trail would look very different if not for the posture that takes in. Um, ben Carson, um, his ancestors, they're not from around here, but um, Jeb Bush, um, his lovely wife is from Mexico. Um, when they met as teenagers, she couldn't speak English. In fact, half of their wedding was in Spanish so that she would be able to understand. Um, Donald Trump's mom is from Scotland. She was born there. Um, his daughter's mother is from Czechoslovakia, and she left there for a better life. And uh, if there were walls, it's interesting to think, uh, she would not have had the opportunity for a fresh start, and um, Ivanka wouldn't exist. Again, it's so interesting just to think, and again, I realize there's so many more dimensions and dynamics to that conversation. But my point is, this posture of taking in and this posture of welcome has made this such a beautiful place. Please don't go changing. I'm not saying the issues are simple, and I'm definitely not endorsing illegal access to this country. No way. If for no other reason, you can't illegally access heaven. There are laws about getting into heaven. There is a port of entry. There is a process to get into heaven. There's one way to get into heaven. His name is Jesus. You can't just circumvent and get in however you want any. Nope. So I can't endorse anything that says just bypass the legal structures. No way. Um, I'm not saying don't vet people, um, which... I haven't heard anyone say, by the way. No one's endorsing that. I'm just saying stay hospitable. Keep your arms open. Let Lady Liberty sing her song to the hurting, hopeless, and huddled masses. Please don't change. But I'm a grateful recipient of your open arms. Uh, but mostly I want to speak to us, um, the church in America. And here's what I want to say. Be a Christian first. Be a Christian first. You have rich history and a rich legacy, but still be a Christian first. This is huge. And here's what I mean. You are a Christian first. An American second. You are first a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then a citizen of the United States of America. That's huge. There are several implications to that, but here's the one I want to highlight the most, and we'll put it up here on the screen. Here's what this means. When the when constitution of heaven clashes with culture of country, heaven wins. Every time. You are first a citizen of heaven. Whenever what the king says clashes with what the culture screams, heaven wins every single time. Whatever heaven says will always trump whatever you feel. It trumps whatever the candidate says. It trumps whatever the government might decide. It trumps whichever political party you might prefer. What does the king's constitution say to us? Because we are first citizens of that kingdom before we are citizens of any country here on earth. I've never been as unnerved as I am now. And it's not primarily because of what the candidates or the government are saying. That's concerning. It's chilling. It's because of what I'm watching the American church start to say along. Some of the posture we in the church are beginning to take. A posture that forgets both national history and the spiritual history of our own journeys. 
And it concerns me because the church is starting to join in the rhetoric of exclusion and refusal. We are starting to, to trump this idea of refuse, you know, and we started to trump this idea of rejects, and we started to trump this idea of others and us. And I'm hearing the church bow to a culture of fear, not the constitution of heaven. And I'm telling you, I'm watching posts online as we start to talk. Stay, keep us safe, keep them out. And that's the rhetoric that we're starting to lean into, that we're starting to use. And I'm telling you, that does not balance what's been done for us. That does not represent the constitution of heaven. I'm telling you that right now. It scares me. Because if we start to say keep out or kick out, and that becomes our posture, listen to me. We start to fly in the very face of the heartbeat of a God whose whole goal is to take in and to help the stranger in need. I'm not telling you what political stance to take, but I am saying what spiritual posture to hold. And it is the posture of the king of heaven, the constitution of God that says, be hospitable. Take in and take care of the stranger in need, especially when you're dealing with two million kids. Church, we cannot join any rhetoric that starts to speak of them for the sake of our safety. If Jesus had done that, I would be hopeless forever. So I don't know. I'm not telling you exactly what to do, but here's the I'm saying, please use your resources. It's interesting in the Warsaw school system, there are 30 plus languages, meaning the nations are coming to us trying to find a different life, trying to find a better future. And they're starting to hear this idea of the immigrants and who needs to leave and who needs to go out and who doesn't belong. We ought to be opening our homes and saying, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to make you feel at home. And can we be the Yoders? Can we be the runnings? Better yet, can we be Jesus to strangers in need? Let's use our resources in whatever ways we can to join God in his heartbeat for the stranger in need. And let's raise our voice. I don't think heaven has any concern about what the government is going to decide. Heaven is concerned about what the church is going to decide to do. And I don't think we've even begun to see the power and potential of the United Church of America. If we all join God in his heartbeat and his quest to take in, the government will hear us. I assure you. Condor, how can you know that? Because I don't know what your Bible says. My Bible says the church is a city on a hill that cannot be ignored. The church is a light in the darkness that everybody will see unless she starts to go covering up, unless she starts to buy into fear, unless she starts to mute her voice in a quest for self-preservation. Otherwise, you can't ignore the church. And so I do, I want to invite us, church, let's remember we are citizens of heaven first. Let's live a life worthy and let's live out the heartbeat of God to take in the stranger and to take care of the stranger. So please use your voice, use your influence, use your resources to join God in helping the needy around us. Lord, we pray um, that we would truly live out and balance out what you've done for us. Thank you for taking us in at such a great risk, at such a great cost. Please give us humility in our posture towards those in need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, encourage you to process some of this with your small group. Um, a reminder, Next Steps would love to help you connect, answer some questions, head out those doors and up the hallway. And please go see Jamie. Sign up for Love Ops. Happy Valentine's Day. Be hospitable. We'll see you all next week. God bless.